um, that I, I have just come to appreciate more and more. I want to take you to the book of Genesis. Genesis uh, chapter 45 is where we'll begin. I'm going to look at two places primarily, but as you will tell as we get into this, we're really going to look at the last part of this book. In fact, we'll even look at some of the earlier parts. There's a powerful message for our time that is here, and that message is essentially this. It's an encouragement to you and I to rest and to trust in the God of creation, who in spite of the rebellion of the human race is able to bring his promise of blessing to the world. That's written down there in your notes if you have them. But just let your mind feast on that reality. Let your heart take hold of it this morning that you can rest and trust in this God. Because it doesn't matter what's going on in the world around us. Uh, so appreciated the prayer earlier, the confusion, the hostility, all that's going on in the world. You know, th th this really isn't different from a lot of other times in human history. Human history sort of ebbs and flows, and uh, there was a time when the Roman Empire fell, and Augustine wrote uh, that, that wonderful classic of his city of God, city of man, to try to uh, help people discern that with the fall of the Roman Empire, that wasn't the fall of the kingdom of God. <laughs> the kingdom of God marches forward. Um, so there have been times throughout world history where uh, you, you see God's grace shining more brightly, and then it appears to be more dim. And then it rushes forth in brightness, and then it appears dim again. But we can rest and we can trust in this God of creation, the God who said, let there be light, and sure enough, there was light. And that light was something beautiful. That light served its purpose. That light did exactly what God intended for it to do. And that light is continuing. And the one who created that light actually broke into our world. And he continues to work his saving grace among us. And he will ultimately bring about the promise of his blessing to the world. We can rest in a God like this. We can trust in a God like this. Well, let's just read a bit of chapter 45. We're dropping down right into the middle of something, and there is a reason why. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. 
And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and so to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house, ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of Egypt. What an amazing moment within human history. We are privileged to look at a point in time that is part of a much larger story of Joseph's life and indeed a much larger story of the fallenness of a world that has turned its back upon God. What we find in the early part of this is that Joseph weeps. And I raise the question here, why does he weep? Well, you might say it's because he's sad. (laughs) That's usually why we cry, isn't it? And some people are more prone to tears than others. I knew a a woman that um, uh, she is so tender in her heart. And the simplest act of kindness or a, a, a small word of encouragement can bring tears to her eyes. Perhaps you know somebody like that as well. But then on the other side of the personality spectrum, there are those people that you think they've never shed a tear in their life. I remember uh, being in the early days of pastoral ministry and uh, a very good friend who's quite tough and was hardened in his early years because of the difficult upbringing that he had, a sort of self-made man who went from rags to riches. And as I knew him, he was in that stage of riches. He was brought to tears by some particularly difficult news within his family. To see a grown man cry uncontrollably, just unleash all that perhaps has been held within for years, built up for years within his heart, and knowing that that person is not one that is prone to cry easily, shows to me how powerful the grief, the sadness, the turmoil, all that is in his heart actually is. It's weighing upon him in a heavy way. As you look back at the story, it really begins uh, in terms of Joseph in chapter 37. I invite you to turn back there with me because it'll help explain why he is crying at this point. We find out there that Joseph is actually 17 years old. He's still back in Canaan with his father and his brothers. And uh, he was the first son of Rachel. And remember, Rachel was the one that um, Jacob really loved. She had a place in his heart. And uh, the other brothers had been born from Leah or had been born from the two that are mentioned here in uh, verse 2, Bilhah and Zilpah. They were handmaidens to Leah and Rachel. Perhaps uh, you know the story, maybe you don't. Uh, I invite you to go back and read those details of the story. But Joseph was special 
in his father's eyes, the firstborn, in fact, at that time, the onlyborn of this loved wife. Uh, Joseph, I think, sort of knew this. And uh, as you read this part of the story, uh, there, there's a sense in which he takes advantage of that. He, he sort of rubs it in. He lets the other siblings know where he stands within the family. And Jacob isn't much help to him either. So we learn in verse uh, 2 or 3 there that Joseph brings a bad report of the brothers to his father, a bit of a tattletale and perhaps even trying to lift himself up in the eyes of his father, because it's just after that, down in verse uh, 4, that we're told that he is loved more than the others of his sons, and more than that, there's a special robe, of the robe of many colors that is made for Joseph and given to him. And this, within the family dynamic, triggers a hatred, both the tattletelling and the coat seeing that he's actually loved in the eyes of the parents more than the others. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more, it tells us in verse 4, more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Well, Joseph must have picked up on this. He seems awfully perceptive throughout the rest of his life. And uh, what does he do? He has a dream. God gives him a dream, and he comes back, and uh, it's a dream about sheaves. And he has this dream that his sheaf stood up erect and tall, and the sheaves of all of his brothers fell down and bowed down in front of his sheaf. And he decides to share that with his brothers. Uh, so we learn in verse uh, 8 that they hated him even more for this dream and for his words. Well, he has another dream, dream number two. And what does he do? He goes to his brothers and he tells them this one. Behold, I dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, if you think, think the 11 stars is just, uh, uh, you know, a coincidence, you need to count out the brothers. Now, at this time, there are only 10. There's another yet to come. But there are 11 stars, and then there's the sun and the moon, mom and dad in the mix. Jacob gets it because Jacob, when he learns of it, he rebukes Joseph. And he says, shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kind of just logged that one in his mind. He said, hmm, I wonder what that's all about. Well, as you move forward through the story, you learn that the brothers concoct a scheme Jacob, the father, sends Joseph out to bring provisions for his brothers who are caring for the flocks. And uh, they're going to kill him. And then they decide, no, let's not kill him. Let's put him down in a pit. And then Judah comes up with a bright idea. What will we get out of that? If, if he dies, why not make some money off of it? So there are some uh, traveling people going by, and they sell him to this group. And finally, he gets taken to Egypt and sold into slavery there. And then he's in a household. What does chapter 39 tell us? That the Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man. And he rises up within the home of Potiphar, who's, who's a man of standing. Rises up so much that all that uh, is under Potiphar's uh, power to control, all that he has, except for his wife, he gives to Joseph. He puts it in his power. 
Joseph acts extremely responsibly. He's upright. He's moral. Uh, Potiphar's wife makes an advance toward him. He turns her down. She makes another advance. She does this daily. Finally, to the point, she grabs his cloak and Joseph runs. You know the story. She accuses Joseph of doing what Joseph actually didn't do. Things are upside down. (laughs) And as a result, uh, Potiphar comes back. He learns the news. He has Joseph thrown into prison. And there Joseph is in prison. But verse 21 of chapter 39 says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he showed him steadfast love. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. What happens there? Same thing happens. He proves himself trustworthy. The Lord is with him. The Lord gives him favor. And the prison keeper ends up putting Joseph in charge of everything. And then along come this cupbearer and the baker. Seems that um, Pharaoh was displeased with these two individuals, and he has them thrown into the prison, in the same prison Joseph happens to be. And so the prison keeper puts Joseph in charge of these two individuals. These two individuals, in time, each have a dream. And they uh, are, are telling Joseph about the dream, and Joseph interprets the dream for them. He asks them, well, tell, tell me all the details. And in chapter 40, he says, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell me. So you're already seeing a young boy or young man of 17 who's a little bit set on himself and uh, wants others around him to know it and is sold into slavery ends up in Potiphar's home, rises and falls, ends up in this prison, rises, and we will soon see remains in prison. The months, the years are passing. And this is what God is bringing to his life. Keep in mind, what we read in chapter 45 is but a moment in time. What we see here is played out. Can you imagine the confusion? Can you imagine the sadness, the pain, the anger that is built up in his heart? And yet along the way, he is seeing God's hand. He's experiencing God alongside that pain, that frustration, the difficulty. And he is learning something of incredible value. So what we find is that the the cupbearer is released, but he forgets to mention Joseph to Pharaoh. The baker is killed just as Joseph had also predicted from the dream, and so he is no more. But there arises a day when Pharaoh has a dream. And suddenly, the cupbearer remembers that he had completely forgotten Joseph, who's been stuck in prison for at least another two years. And so this cupbearer mentions it to Pharaoh when no one else seems to be able to interpret the dream. And so Joseph is called before Pharaoh. He's called there to interpret this dream, and the dream is essentially that there are 
seven cattle that are fat and healthy. And along comes another set of cattle that are skinny and lean, and they devour the fat, healthy cattle. And then when you look at them, when all is said and done, they appear just as they were before, unhealthy, skinny, lean, ugly. And then he dreams another part, that there is a stalk of corn, and on that stalk of corn are seven ears of corn, and they look healthy. And then he sees another stalk, and the ears, the seven ears of corn are unhealthy. They look pale. They won't nourish. And so what is he to make of all this? Well, Joseph tells him that dreams are interpreted by God. Pharaoh, back in chapter 41, verse 38, he says to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? What, what has happened? Well, he's gone from hearing the interpretation of Joseph to now making a decision to move forward. Joseph gives testimony that it's God who reveals dreams to people. He says, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do in verse 25. Or uh, Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do, verse 28. Or down in verse uh, 32, God is the one who has fixed this. God will shortly bring it about. Everywhere he speaks, he gives testimony to God. And as Pharaoh hears the interpretation of the dream and he hears Joseph's wisdom about what he should do, in other words, in years one to seven, which are going to be good, healthy years for crops, take one-fifth from every year and pack it away somewhere because seven lean years are coming and you're going to need the food for then. And it wasn't just Egypt that experienced this famine in God's design it was the whole world, at least that part of the world, that experienced these lean years. So it's there that Pharaoh says, who can we find that would, that's like this? This man should be over. So suddenly Joseph finds himself in this great position. What is Joseph's response to all this? Of course, Pharaoh gives him the daughter, the priest of On, becomes his wife. She bears two children. Just hear this in the light of the unfolding story. Down in chapter 41, verse 51, Joseph calls the name of the firstborn Manasseh. Why? For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. God has made me forget. Uh, he's grateful to God but yet he is not where he's going to be as he unveils himself before his brothers in chapter 45. Listen to son number two, Ephraim. The name of the second he calls Ephraim, verse 52. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. He is grateful to God. He sees God at work in the midst of all this chaos and turmoil that he experienced but he's not yet where he's going to be in chapter 45. What I'm saying to you is that part of the weeping is the original sin that was done to him of the brothers. Part of the weeping was related to his own involvement in that sin, 
And part of the weeping is these years of enduring, of working it out, of living with the consequences of all that God had done. And then no doubt, part of the weeping is what actually happens in the following chapters. The lead-in is really chapter 42, 43, 44. And uh, just to quickly describe what goes on here, Joseph's brothers, 10 of them, show up. Now there's an 11th, Benjamin, who's actually another son of Rachel. So this is a whole brother to Joseph, whom Joseph has not seen. Perhaps he saw him very, very young. I forget where the detail comes in, but he's not seen for years and years. Perhaps he learned of it through the news that the brothers brought to him. But nonetheless, Joseph uh, is hearing out his brothers, and they are telling him about the family. It tells us that he recognizes them immediately. They did not yet recognize him. So he's got the advantage. He knows the information. He knows who they are, but they don't know who he is. So there's a bit of a uh, sting operation going on here. He's going to catch them in their act. There's things he wants to learn about them, things he wants to find out and see whether they have grown or whether they're the same rotten scoundrels he knew years ago who would just as soon sell the younger brother into slavery. And so he tests this. He gives them food, but he puts the money in their sacks and they go home. He has already charged them of being spies in the land. And so as they go home and they discover that the money is in their sacks, they are thinking the worst possible. In fact, they are thinking to themselves that this is because of what we did to Joseph years ago. God is now catching up with us. They're feeling the pangs of guilt over their sin. Well, they tell Jacob the story when they arrive home and how they must bring the younger brother with them when they go back. And he's extremely reluctant to do that because he's struggling with the grief. He says, I've already lost one son, meaning Joseph. When they sold him into slavery, they brought that robe and they dipped it in the blood of a goat and they handed it to Jacob and they said, what do you think? And of course, Jacob's conclusion is that his son Joseph had been torn up by a wild animal and he was dead. And so this is what Jacob is referring to. I don't want to lose son number two of Rachel, my loved wife. I couldn't go to the grave this way. And so he, he won't allow them to go back. Well, but first Reuben and then later Judah steps up. And Judah says, uh, Father, if we're going to go back and get food, I must take him. He says, pin this one on me. Now, if you know anything about Judah and the development of the story, he's kind of a scoundrel in chapter 38. You can read it there on your own. Uh, but that is the one whom God is going to use. Remember the lion of Judah? Chapter 49 of Genesis. God is going to work particularly through his seed to bring about the promised crusher of the head of the serpent. Going back to Genesis 3.15. God is at work in this story. Well, what happens just prior to Joseph's unveiling himself to his brothers? Judah goes up, chapter 44, verse 18. 
They go again, this time in a much different frame. God is at work in their minds and hearts. Judah goes up to Joseph when Joseph is saying, no, your brother now has been caught. We are going to take him and imprison him. He will be our servant, Benjamin. Judah comes in. This is what he says. He goes up and he says, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself, my Lord, asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to you, or to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs even in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. Of course, as he's saying, our father, Joseph is thinking, my father, right? For your servant became a pledge of safety, Jacob, or sorry, uh, Judah became a pledge of safety for Benjamin's life. For the, I became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me, I fear to see the evil that my father finds. You feel the power of that? Here's the one that said, let's sell Joseph into slavery. And now God has been worked through time, years, and through circumstance to bring Judah to a, uh, Judah to a place where he is willing to step in and die for his brother Benjamin. That's powerful. Why does Joseph weep? Because he sees God at work in human lives throughout time to bring his transformation from one who would just as soon give up a brother to one who is willing to die for him. And it's then that Joseph cannot control himself, chapter 45. He sends everybody out and he weeps so loudly that the Egyptians in Pharaoh's household, they hear him. It's powerful. Joseph weeps. Why does he weep? 
There's something more here. There's something that Joseph has come to see and believe. Now that we've laid out the story, it won't take as long to help you see this. Because this is a very important part of the lesson that's here for you and me. What is it that Joseph sees and believes? What is it God has brought him to in his frame of thinking? We were talking about the, uh, the book of Genesis uh, amongst our staff not too long ago. And uh, one of my colleagues made this very good observation. He said, have you ever noticed how the people that God chooses often look a whole lot more spiritual in their older age? Think about that. I don't know how you think about your progress in the faith. Often older people don't think they've made very good progress in the faith. Uh, They're the most humble of all. They see their faults. They see their sins. But from an outsider's perspective, I think what my colleagues said bears some truth. That often as you look at the life of an older person and and you can retrace the history, you, you, you know the different things they've been through, the confusion, the hardship, the struggle with sin. And there has been perhaps failure along the way, but they keep coming back to the Lord. They keep growing just a little bit more in faith, day by day, week by week. And the months pass, and the years pass, and you see just a bit more of the Lord Jesus Christ in their souls. Something about that. And I think that's what has happened to Joseph. Joseph comes to see something after this passing of time that he would have never recognized or understood or been able to offer ultimately. What is it that he comes to see? He tells us in verse 4 and following, initially in verse 3, when he says to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? Talk about being able to hear a penny drop. Wow. They are so stunned, they cannot even answer that simple question. Is my father still alive? Now, they've already told him that he's alive, but, but he wants to know. He loves his father. He longs to see him again. They're speechless. And so Joseph says, come here, come closer. It's okay. Now, in some cases, when people say come closer, you're looking for the knife that's about ready to stab you in the back. And on one level, you could argue Joseph had every right to take the knife and stab him in the back. But this is the remarkable thing, isn't it? Why doesn't he do it? That's the great question here to be asking. And it's for this reason, that he has come to see God himself behind the story of his life and indeed behind the story of all of human history. God is there. Do you see how often he mentions God in the verses that follow, verse 4? Look at this. Come near to me, please. And they come near. He says, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you. Read through verse 6. The famine has been in the land two years. There are yet five years in which they will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you. Verse 8. 
So it was not you who sent me here, but God. If there's one thing Joseph has come to see, it is the hand of God in human history and in his life in particular within human history. Both things are equally important. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Of course, man rebelled, didn't he? He fell into sin. He turned his back on God. And we see the outpouring of evil that comes after that. You go into chapter 3, and there's that initial sin of taking the fruit from the forbidden tree. And then chapter 4, you get the killing of Abel by the brother Cain. And then following that, it gets even worse. Lamech kills a man, and he boasts about it to his two wives. But as you continue the story, it becomes even worse. Evil becomes so pervasive during the time of the flood that God is sorry he made the world and he seeks to destroy the world and begin again. And as Noah and his three sons and family come out of that ark, it is a renewal of creation. It is a, a do-over, if you will, a rebooting of human history. But as soon as that happens, as soon as God makes a covenant with man, sin, it survived the ark because it's lodged deep within the human heart. Sin gets evil and more evil, so much to the point that there is a tower that is built. Come, let us make a name for ourselves, they say. Thank you, God, very much for creating the world. We can take over from here. We need you no longer. And so they give a collective finger to God, and they are going to make a name for themselves. God goes down. He judges. He confuses the languages. That was a good one. But then what does God do in a great act of mercy? He comes to Abraham, and the language is very specific. It's very particular when God says, I will make a name for you. Let us make a great name for ourselves. One chapter later, God is saying to Abraham, I will make a name for you. What does that teach us about the world in which we live? Humanity will always strive to create its own paradise, but it'll never work. It'll always be thwarted. There is only one way that the kingdom of heaven comes. It comes down out of the heavens from God to us. And so when Jesus came into this world, he could say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God incarnate bringing his kingdom. To us and we pray thy kingdom come thy will be done because we're also looking for a day when the Lord Jesus shall return and the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven from God that is the way that paradise ultimately comes and it is true in our own lives as well that the sin of the human heart I am a participant in the fallen nature and the fallenness of this world, I contribute to that evil just as others around me do. And I must turn to God for his solution. And so I not only see him at work in the whole of human history, I see him at work in my life as my life is a part of that larger picture of human history. This is what Joseph does. God sent me before you. 
He believes it so much that he even says, so it was not you who sent me here. It was God who sent me here. Now, I, I suppose that all of us, uh, we, we can accept that evil happens in a fallen world. But do we actually see God's hand behind it? Now, listen to me carefully. God's not responsible for that evil in any way, shape, or form. But he is able to work in and through that evil to accomplish his purposes. That's what Joseph is saying, and I, for one, am so grateful for it. Because if there were anything in this world that were outside of God's control, it would rock my faith. Knowing he is in control of all things, even evil, and that evil cannot thwart his purpose, but evil is accomplished, or he accomplishes purposes through that evil, allows me to take hold of this statement I gave you at the very beginning, to rest and trust in the God of creation. It's only that that allows me to find that place of rest. God accomplishes purposes through this evil. But it's not only seeing that God is behind it, but to see the goodness of God in his purposes and what he is doing. Some of us struggle with the sovereignty of God, with his providential leading in our lives. And I suppose that's partly reflective of the pain we may have experienced, either from our own choices or from the choices of others. It's hard to live in a fallen world. But on the other hand, others of us struggle with believing God is as good as he is. You ever struggle with that? I think Paul knew the human race struggled with that. His logic in Romans 8 is wonderful. He says, he who did not spare his own son for us all, but he gave him up, how will he not also freely with him, giving him up, give us all things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Right? Uh, what Paul is recognizing is there is a tendency in the human mind and heart to leave God or to, to disbelieve that he's as good as he is. We can even come to the point of believing that God gave his son for my sins so that I would not experience an eternity of judgment and hell away from him. And yet, we stop there. And we don't enter into all that that means, to, to the joy and the delight and the security and the satisfaction of finding our all in all in God through Jesus Christ. Our minds can play tricks, we can doubt, we can go back into the confusion, we can slide. And Paul is addressing that very nature of humanity, even the redeemed mind. It's his logic. If he gave you the big thing, if he gave you the very life of the Lord Jesus, won't he give you all things? Or think of the way Paul describes it in Ephesians that we have been blessed in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. 
and he traces the highlights of those incredible blessings from creation past, even before creation, into eternity. How God has elected and chosen and placed his love upon us and redeemed us and brought us into his family and has given us the spirit as a down payment of the inheritance to come. He blows our minds with the wonder of who he is and the gift he has given to us. Now, our, our problem isn't that we think too highly of God and his intentions. Our default is always to think too low of God and his intentions. But Joseph sees it. What does he say? And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Verse 5. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. God has good intentions. His intentions are around life. His intentions are around that relationship. When he speaks of the remnant here, you can't help but hear the echo of Genesis 3.15, which speaks of the seed of the woman that will conquer the serpent's seed. This remnant. Somehow, some way, God is going to work out his purposes and plans. That remnant becomes all the more important as you think of Abraham in and through your offspring. All nations on earth will be blessed. Is it that Joseph sees the big picture? He understands the hand of God and he actually has taken hold of it by faith? It's an amazing life. What is it that he longs for his brothers? What does he long for them to know and to experience? They're the brothers. They're experiencing guilt. Surely God has caught up with us for what we did to our brother Joseph. And what happens? Joseph says, come near to me, please. Joseph speaks kindness to them. He describes for them a world in which God is sovereign over evil. He's sovereign over the the pain. He's sovereign over the confusion. He's sovereign over everything. And that God is working all of that out for our good. (laughs) He's given them a gift. He's saying, here it is. And then he continues to to go on, he says in verse 9, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, your flocks. Verse 11, there I will provide for you, for there are yet five more years of famine. As Joseph paints this picture of what he sees and believes. He's calling the brothers into it. He's inviting them back to what God had said in Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 12. The seed of the serpent will conquer. Sorry, the seed of the woman will conquer. And how is that going to happen? In and through the offspring of Abraham, and it will have blessing. See, what God has called us as his people into is not only to see and believe it for ourselves, 
but to draw others in. As one of my friends said, ever since the Abrahamic covenant, it's eyes out. It's eyes out. In other words, God's promise of blessing is for the world, for Jew and Gentile. And we are the bearers of that blessing. We take that blessing out to the nations, to our neighbors, and around the world, calling all to enter in with us, much like Joseph is doing here. He longs for his brothers to know and experience what he has come to understand about God and the world and to know that release, to know that freedom, to know the joy and delight of resting in and trusting in a God like this who in spite of their own contribution to the sin of the world, to humanity's rebellion, they can be forgiven and they can enter in and find rest. What a wonderful gift he gives to them. Very briefly, let me take you to Genesis chapter 50. Jacob has died. Joseph has wept over Jacob at the beginning of chapter 50. They've taken him back to the land of Canaan. They've done their mourning and lamenting. It's all a process that happens over a few months. Why? Because Jacob had met with God. <laughs> Rather, God had met with Jacob, and he said, your bones will be carried back to the land of Canaan. And so he made Joseph promise he would take his bones back. Joseph did it. And um, seeing how uh, perhaps effective Jacob's words had been with Joseph, the brothers uh, come together and they concoct a story about Jacob, their father, and maybe something else he said but forgot to tell Joseph along the way. This is a funny part of the story in one sense, but very sad in another. Funny because you think, you know, if, if you guys didn't figure this out by Joseph, he's pretty discerning. He, he kind of knows what's happening. God has built that into him by this point of his life. But notice what they say in verse 15. His brothers saw that their father was dead. They said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Where are they living? Are they living in that state of forgiveness, of, of joy, of delight, of rest in God and in his covenant with Abraham? No, they're not. They, they, they think about themselves. Isn't that the way it is? A liar knows a, a liar. It believes everybody else is lying to him, you know. Um, and and they're, they're thinking back, well, we, we hated him. That's what led to this problem in the first place. Genesis 37, but okay, what more? So, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive their transgressions of the servant of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Why did he weep? Why did he weep? I suppose there, again, are several answers to this. It's really a continuation of the story from the past that we've taken time to retrace. But I think it's this. I think Joseph has come to believe, he's come to see something pretty special about God. And he meant what he said in chapter 45. 
He acted as a shepherd to his brothers. He wanted to bring them into that place of forgiveness and release, joy, satisfaction, rest. He wanted them to know God as he knows God. He wanted them to live in the light of that grand promise God gave to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob in which Joseph himself was living, and so he wept. They then come in verse 18, and they fall down before him and say, Behold, we are your servants. But here's Joseph's words. What does he do? He steps in as the shepherd again. Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Aren't those wonderful words by the author? I mean, if you had been in the shoes of the brother, if I was there, I, I may not have acted any differently. The guilt so strong, the memory very clear, See, we, we tend to think this way because we're, we're not God. We're not like him. And so we tend to assume that others will treat us as we think we treated them. But to know a God like this, to be ministered to by somebody who knows God like this. What a gift. What a precious gift. Joseph is clearly connected to the big picture of all that God is doing. He says as much down below in verse 24. Joseph says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you, and he'll bring up you up out of this land to the land that he swore. Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. This is what um, kept him believing. This is what supported him in his life day to day. He believed God's promises. The writer of Hebrews makes a pretty big deal of this. He actually refers to this very incident. He says, by faith, Joseph believed the exodus was coming, and he gave instructions concerning his bones. You ever think uh, the, the preparation for a funeral, which is more or less what this is, could be an expression of faith? It's actually the ultimate expression, is it not? Why? Because Joseph knows he is going to die, and he banks everything, absolutely everything, on the promise of God. I wonder about you and I. As we close today, let me just ask you a few questions that might probe a bit. What causes you to weep? What causes you to weep? In a room like this, I suspect there's a lot of pain um, I could share my pain with you for the next day, <laughs> maybe longer, and you don't want to sit around and hear all that. 
but I suspect I'm not the only one. If you've lived any years in this world, there will be pain. And as many days as God gives us, I suspect there will be pain. There'll be confusion, there'll be doubts. But Joseph is a reminder to us that what you see and what you believe makes all the difference in the world. Do you know this creator God? I want to encourage you to read his word. Read his word and read it with discernment. You ever notice some of the best readers in the world that, that have really grappled with God's word? They get this. They see there's stuff going on in the world. They see there's stuff going on in their individual lives. And they're wrestling with the, 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 the disillusion of it all. And somehow they come out believing even more in this God. Think of C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia. What's reflected there? That's C.S. Lewis's own struggle to deal with the world in which he found himself and to, to understand the world and to make sense of it and to see how God's hand is at work in human history. Madame Lengel, A Wrinkle in Time, perhaps another one that you're familiar with, or the Lord of the Rings trilogy. There are people out there who are wrestling in this way with Scripture. So when I say read the word, don't hear me to say something like, sin is bad, don't do it. Read the Bible and pray, okay? I mean read the word. Read Genesis. Go from beginning to end. Examine it for the character of God in spite of the rebellion of the human race. Look at it from the perspective of what God has promised to do and how he is the sole figure in the whole book that remains true to character. He remains true to his promises. And as you read it, and think about it, and pray about it, and reread it, it will take hold of your mind and heart. Because as I began, when I was a young boy, I learned about the Word of God. But as I became older, I realized, oh my goodness, this God is real. This God is true. <laughs> he never goes back on his promise. Human history goes there, it goes here, it goes over there. My own life goes here, there, over there. And yet this God is on track to accomplish everything he said he was going to do and more. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has in store for those who love him, the scriptures say. Read the Bible that way and you'll find yourself like Joseph. Let me encourage you with one other thing. Joseph, it wasn't enough for him to see and believe. He longed for others, for his brothers, for his family, to know and experience what he knew of God and experienced of him. It's easy in our society to, and as, particularly as we struggle with life, to have our eyes fixed on, how am I going to make it through this next day? Eyes out. Expand your horizon. Look to those who are around you in need. They may not know it right now. They may be living a satisfied life, but there's something they need that's far greater 
And Joseph understood that fully as he came to the end of his life. He was giving his life in a way that was drawing others into that rest and trust that can be known only in God, the creator of this universe himself. What does it take to live your life that way? Well, I'd suggest it starts with the first suggestion that you have to read the Bible that way. And the point is not that you would know the Bible, but that the Bible would become a part of you, that the Lord Jesus himself would become a part of you. And as you do that, just ask God to use you, simple request, use me this day in the life of another person. You pray that prayer, I guarantee he's going to do it. He's probably already doing it. But we miss those opportunities because our minds are not shaped in that direction. Let's bow before the Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great love for us. Joseph spared the life. He spared life so that a remnant could continue on. You are the one that gives us life eternal. And in you, we find that true rest. Lead and guide us, we pray. For your name's sake, in Jesus' name we pray.